we are in the book of Hebrews, and today we are going to be focusing on the second half of Hebrews chapter 7, dealing with this Melchizedek priesthood, right? Doesn't that sound exciting? All right? But here's the thing. We're going to get there in just a moment, but we're actually going to start back in, in chapter 2 today. Because as I, I've been processing, so when you study Paul, Paul is, is very linear in his thinking, in his arguments. I mean, Paul takes A, you know, he builds the foundation of A, which leads to B, which leads to C, which is just, you know, boom, boom, boom. Uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't do that. It, it's more uh, circular in his thinking. He He's making this point, remember, so context is king. So think about who he's writing to are people who grew up under Judaism, who have come to faith in Christ, but now they're facing persecution. They're facing persecution from the Romans, they're facing persecutions from those who are still under Judaism, and they're they're shrinking back. They're, they're drifting. They're, they're kind of moving back towards going back under the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this book to encourage them to push on, endure, don't, don't fall back. And, and he's making the point, really the highlight of the book, the heart of the book is just Jesus is better than. You go back to, to chapter 1. He's, he's a better revelation of God than the Old Testament saints because he is the exact representation of his nature, the, the radiance of his glory. He's, he's better than the angels because he's the son. He's better than Moses. He's a better high priest, comes from a better priesthood. Where he's going is he's the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. That's next week, chapter 8. He, he, as a high priest, works in a better sanctuary, right? Not the one here on earth, but the one actually in heaven. And oh, by the way, he's got a better sacrifice. It's not the blood and bulls and goats. It's his own blood. And so... In this argument that he's making, one of the things that happens is he gives us little pieces, right? So there's certain things even in chapter 7 that we're going to see that he's going to expound upon later in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. But I couldn't help but think this week as we're talking about how Jesus is the greater priesthood. He's a greater high priest. He's already... He's already mentioned this. He's already let us know where he's going. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, this is the place where he first mentions it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The first place he mentions it. He picks it up again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He comes back to it in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. He comes back to it in chapter 5. Look at verse 9 and 10. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? That's that first mention of what now he's going to, you know, he's been talking about all in chapter 7. We see it again in chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So do you see, he's been setting the stage. Jesus is far better. He's far better revelation to God. He's far better than the angels. He's better than Moses, but he's a better high priest. And the question, of course, is, well, how can he be a high priest? Because he's of the tribe of Judah. Well, he doesn't come from the Levitical priesthood. He comes from the priesthood of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? That's chapter 7. So you kind of got where we are. So last week in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, what we learned is why is Melchizedek a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood? So if you miss that, I encourage you to go back and do it. That brings us to the text for today. Chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 11. I'm going to read it out loud if you'll follow along. It's a little bit of a long passage, but hang with it, all right? Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, from the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning him whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which, are to, uh, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priest. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, for on the one hand, there's a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, uh, 
said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So, again, he, 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 he's already beginning to talk about this new covenant. He's already talking about the fact of the better sacrifice. So, in this passage, there are certain things. There are five things that he lays out about the shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood. Why there was a need for the Levitical priesthood to be erased. The first thing he mentions is this. The Levitical priesthood was tied to the Old Covenant which could never bring about spiritual maturity. He mentions it back in verse 11. For if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, then why was it ever talked about there needed to be another? The point is, it could bring about perfection. He says it again there in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, when we look at the word perfect, we're not talking about sinless perfect. What we're talking about is maturity. And that, if you remember, going back to chapter 5, is how he actually started this whole section. That these people who should have been maturing, who should now become teachers of the, of the things of God, they were still babes, they were still infants, still needing the milk of the word. And so he goes into chapter 6. So we want to leave these elementary principles to go on to deeper things if we can. This has all been about maturity. And his point here is, is that the Levitical priesthood comes out of the old Mosaic covenant which could never bring spiritual maturity the reason is is because it was based on this weak and useless Ooh, did you notice that verse um verse 18 for on the one hand, there's a setting aside of, a form, of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Ooh. The law. The Mosaic Covenant. Weak. Yeah. You know why it was weak? Because number one, it set down all these parameters, everything you had to do. Right? All these things you couldn't do. But it didn't give you the power to do it. 
It didn't give you the strength. There was nothing in it that gave you the ability to accomplish what it asked you to accomplish. The second thing is, is that ultimately it's about justification, right? And this is where he's going. Where he's going to go and say in just a couple chapters later, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to bring justification. It's not there. It's weak. It's useless. The idea of useless is it doesn't profit. It's unprofitable. Because... It can't bring about spiritual life. In fact, notice here, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, so the contrast to this is what? There's bringing in of a better hope through Jesus through which we draw near to God. You know, the reality is under the law, people could come and make sacrifices. People could keep all of the pieces of the law and yet their hearts could be far from God far from God, right? Isn't that even his complaint against Israel? You bring your sacrifices, but your heart is far from me. It was weak. It was useless. And the Levitical priesthood came into being because of the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law is weak and it's useless. That's one of the big shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood. Not only that, the Levitical priesthood is just simply based on genealogy and ancestry. You got to be a priest because you're born in the right family, right? You were a Levite. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you love God. Doesn't matter if you're a godly person. Doesn't matter if you have a heart for the things of God. All that mattered was you descended from this one guy, right? You, you won that lottery in birth, right? The DNA lottery. And actually to become the high priest, it wasn't just that of, of the Levite. You had to be in the lineage of Aaron himself. And that simply is what, what allowed you to be a priest. It's a shortcoming. So guess what? They had some priests who weren't the best guys in the world. Have you ever read the New Testament, the Gospels about Caiaphas and Annas? Do you think they were really good guys? It's a weakness. It's a shortcoming. Another thing he tells us is the Levitical priesthood was weak because it transitioned all the time. So let's say you've got a good high priest, right? He's godly. He actually loves the Lord. He works with you. You have relationship with him. But he's not going to be around forever. He's going to die. Right? They're, they're prevented by death. So Josephus, I thought this was interesting. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time of Christ, wrote a lot of Jewish history, said at that point, there had been 83 unique high priests who had served uh, under the Levitical system. 83. They came and they went. And what's really interesting is because you think that the law was given, depending on how you do all the math of the Old Testament, about 1400 BC, so about 1400 years. So most of these high priests have been high priests for about 20 years. Kind of makes sense. That's about probably where it would be. But they came and they went. The last thing. I want to make sure you saw this. Verse 28. For the law appoints men 
as high priests who are weak. They're fallen. They struggle with the same things that you and I do. And sometimes they don't have any better success. In fact, one of the things about the high priest that came, I mean, you know, it was kind of the political system. Well, what happens in the political system? People start using it to kind of line their own pocket to make them, you know, their life better. That's what happened. It, it, and that's his, his argument. You, you're leaving Christ to go back under this system, but this system is so flawed. And it had its reasons, right? He's not dealing with why did God then give this system that was flawed because there were reasons for that. But the point is what he's trying to say is you've got something far better and it's Jesus. And now he takes these five things and he contrasts, okay, the shortcomings of Levitical, but look at Jesus. So Jesus is the high priest of a new covenant, which, by the way, can bring all the spiritual maturity you need. In fact, this is where, where this is going. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, Jesus brought in something that was better, where there was hope where you could actually draw near to God. You could come in relationship with him. You could grow in maturity. And oh, by the way, I don't want to get too far down ahead, right? Because he's going to keep doing this. But this is exactly where he's going. Chapter 8, he's going to talk about this new covenant. In fact, quotes a lot of Jeremiah 31. And then it kind of crescendos in chapter 9 and 10 as he talks about not only the new covenant, but now the new temple, right? The temple that's in heaven and Jesus' sacrifice. And it kind of comes to this, you talk about the old one couldn't bring maturity, couldn't bring perfection. Hebrews 10, 14, but for by one offering he has what? Perfected forever. All time, for all time, those who are sanctified. You see, Jesus' priesthood is far superior. The second thing he tells us is the priesthood of Jesus is based upon an oath. Now, this whole oath thing is kind of, uh, kind of interesting. A uh, little, little hard for us to understand. So, let's, uh, let's look at verses 20 and 21. And as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn, will not change his mind, you are priests forever. Right? Remember his argument is, one of the failures, one of the shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood was, you didn't have to have a heart from God, you didn't have to be qualified, all you had to do was be of the right lineage, and you became a priest. There was no God saying, you're the man. You're the one that I choose. They, they just, it was by ancestry. But Jesus was chosen. Jesus is the one who he said back in Psalm 110 about the coming Messiah, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's promise. This is God's plan. Jesus was anointed. You even think back to you know, John chapter 20 where it says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean? The anointed one. The one chosen by God to provide our salvation. Jesus 
Jesus is the one that God designed to be your high priest and to be my high priest. And it's immutable. Nothing can change that. This was God's design. In that, he becomes the guarantee of a better covenant, verse 22. So much more, Jesus has become the guarantee of this this better covenant. And this is where, again, I don't want to get too far ahead. I don't want to give you next week's stuff. You need to come back. But chapter 8 goes into this new covenant. So where the old covenant was weak... It was useless because it didn't give you any power. The new covenant is quite different. The new covenant, God says, I'm going to write my law upon your heart. If a man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. New things have become. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Now the power to actually live. In the midst of it. Oh, by the way, and their sin and their iniquity, I will remember no more. Completely forgiven. You don't have to come back and do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Once and for all. Not only that, it will be my people. This relationship with God. And Jesus is the guarantor. Now, that's an interesting word. He is the one on who rests the obligation that the blessings of the new covenant become ours. The obligation is not on us. Jesus is the guarantor. The Old Testament, the Levitical priests were not the guarantor of anything. But Jesus has become the guarantor of this covenant. Not only that, his priesthood is forever. Uh, look um, Look at verse 24 and 25. But Jesus, on the other hand, right? It's it's a beautiful argument. On the one hand, and he kind of runs down and shows the shortcomings. And now he, he, on the other hand, here's Jesus, right? Here's all the blessings and and, and the power of his. So this is what he says um, there in verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the idea is is that we know who the high priest is, right? He's a good guy. His name's Jesus. He actually loves us. He cares about us. He intercedes for us. And we don't ever have to worry about, well, what what about the new guy? What about the guy after him? Because there is no one after Jesus. Jesus is it forever. He's eternal. He's conquered death, right? We don't have to worry about, well, something, you know, what about the next guy? He may not love us. No, no, no. It's Jesus. He's eternal in the heaven. And not only that, he is the perfect high priest. Did you notice there verse uh, 26? For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, pure, righteous. Second word, innocent, without guile, no deceit, trustworthy. The next word he uses here is undefiled. He's unstained. He's perfect. 
What does it mean separated from sinners? Well, you know, the, the high priest here on earth, right, sometimes had, had his people. And his, we see that with Caiaphas. We see that with Annas. And, 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 and they, could, they could move him. And they could, they could be a part of, you know, trying to, to move this thing in ways which was not just simply right. But Jesus is separated from sinners because guess what? He's in heaven. He's already gone in the veil. Right? He's seated at the right hand of the, uh, of the throne of God, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstools. There's nobody that's going to be influencing him against us. He's separated from sinners, exalted, exalted in the heavens. Do you understand? Jesus is so much better than the Levitical priesthood. Why on God's green earth would you leave Jesus and go back to what is so inferior? So today, my question in the so what aspect is what about us? For most of us, it's not this pressure to go back under the law. I mean, we kind of like eating our lobster and our shrimp, right? So that's that's usually not the push. But there's so many other things in this world that causes us to want to turn our eyes from Jesus and follow Jesus with our whole heart. And folks, I just need you to understand today that you, this is your identity. You know, we just sang today, who you say that I am. This is all about identity. This is who you are in Christ today. Today, I don't, I don't care what happened yesterday. I don't care what happened last night. I don't care what's going on in life. Today, if you know Jesus, this is your identity. You have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. And he's eternal in the heavens. And we just kind of go back and think of the blessings that that brings. Go back to chapter 2. We read it a little earlier. Therefore, he made him to be like his brethren in all things, Right? He became one of us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you understand that, that, that our God is a God of mercy? He's a God of compassion. He's walked where we walk. Yeah, he did it without sin, but he understands our weaknesses. He understands our hurts. He's merciful. And when you drop the ball, when I, when I fail, when, 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 we, when we screw up, we have a God who, when we turn to him, doesn't turn his back to us. Do you remember the story of what happened with Judas? He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sees now, after the arrest and the trial, where this is going. There's remorse in his heart. He goes back. What was the response of the priest? Was it merciful? No, it was, hey, that's none of our business. This is all on you. It's not our high priest. Our high priest stands there with open arms and says, come on. He's merciful. Think of what we, we learned about our high priest in Hebrews chapter 4. That he sympathizes with us, right? So if you skip down, 
but one who has been tempted in all things, so we are without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Our high priest understands, he sympathizes, he, he gets where we are. He stood there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and wept. He understood the pain. He understood the hurt. He, he saw what disease did. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it means to be tempted. And he stands there as a ready resource to us to provide help and need in whatever you're going through today. Whether it's a physical thing, whether it's an emotional thing, whether it's a temptation, maybe it's a sense of failure that you have. He understands and his whole point is he stands there ready to meet that need today if you will simply come to him, right? He's a high priest who sympathizes. Think of that word that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 6, that he's become that anchor for our soul, this hope we have as an anchor for our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has already entered, right? We have him as our high priest to anchor us to what is to come, to that day when we will stand before him in heaven. He's that one that when we've turned to the left, we've turned to the right, the, the times that we have, we have fallen and we have failed, man, we can grab on to that right. Somebody was saying, you know, when you ever talk about the anchor, you got to remember there's a rope, right? And it's the rope that we grab and it pulls us back. That's who Jesus is. He knows what you're going through. He understands this world. And every time that we grab onto him and he becomes that tether to our life of what really matters or what's really important what really brings value that's why our god is a god of redemption here in chapter 7 verse 19 for the law made nothing perfect and on the other hand there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So he is our forever connector, our forever connector with God. You know, we talked about the other couple weeks ago, I can't lose your salvation, right? This is it. He's forever. He has obtained eternal redemption. He's the one who always ties us back into this relationship because of the heart of what's a high priest a high priest is a mediator between god and man and he is our forever high priest and he forever connects us to the god who made us did you notice verse 25 therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He works today on our behalf. Now, he says, therefore, he's able also to save forever. Now, one of the things we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews is that when you and I today in our culture, in our context, when we read the word salvation or save, we always think, by default, justification, right? That's just kind of where our mind goes, and yet it's not necessarily what the word means. It can mean that, and to be honest with you, it works here, 
so that he is able to justify forever those who draw near, right? That works. But I would suggest to you that I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because he says, since he always lives to make intercessions for, for them. Let me ask you, are you justified today because Jesus is making intercession for you today? Is that what your justification hangs on? No. Your justification today hangs on the fact of Jesus' blood and his death, burial, and resurrection for you, correct? That's what our justification hangs on. When he says he's able to save forever, I don't think he's talking justification. I don't think that's what he has in mind. I think what he has in mind, ultimately, actually, is when he uses, because he's always looking ahead to our ultimate salvation, right? We're going to be with him. Our reward, our inheritance, entering this, the Sabbath rest, the, the rest of God's people. And the idea is that we are here today living, right, our sanctification. We're living for that day. And yet there are stresses, there are, there are trials, there's temptations. But he is there always making intercession for us, praying. Why do we keep our eyes on that so that we, we live this life, we continue to grow more like Christ, which brings great reward on that day. You remember Jesus talking to Peter? The night that he was going to be betrayed, and he said, Peter, I've been praying for you. Because Satan's demanded the privilege of sifting you like wheat. And I'm going to be praying, and I am praying that you will be strong, and that you will, con when that is over, you will turn your heart back. He intercedes for us. Folks, Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect. He intercedes for us. I love how John puts this in 1 John. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, right? We want to become more like Christ. We don't want to sin in our life. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. He intercedes for us. That's the heart of Romans chapter 8 and that beautiful passage about how nothing can separate us from his love. And his, his point is, well, is it even our own sin? And it's like, well, who's the one who condemns? Who's the judge? Wasn't well, Jesus? Who, by the way, yes, died for us and rather has been raised to life and is even at the right hand of the Father now interceding for us. This is his ministry today as our high priest. He prays for us. He's there to help us. He's there to encourage us. He's his blessing in our life today is that he is working even today that we would live and grow, which brings great reward. Lastly, verse 27. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. But Jesus, the blessing of Jesus is that he has provided eternal forgiveness. Once and done, it is finished, it is done. 
never to be remembered again. And if you've not come to put your faith in Jesus, can I just tell you, that's where it begins. It all begins with Jesus having died for you, having conquered death for you. You put your faith in him, invite him to be your savior. And man, he forgives, he saves, he becomes your high priest, right? He enters into the holy place now and intercedes for you. Jesus. Jesus. Do you understand the argument now? Why would you go back? Why would you turn away from following Jesus with your whole heart? The blessing is, is that you have a high priest who is eternal in the heavens, who lives to intercede, to be that one who provides us help in the time of need. Lean into Jesus.